the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Lynn producing Clark Hilton engineering today's program. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Mary Graybar. Dr. Graybar is the author most recently of Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. The book is published by Tyndale House and uh, is a must read. Let me just put it that way. She'll be joining us uh, later this hour. Dr. Mary Graybar, again, debunking the 19, or rather the 1619 Project. Uh, also, I'll just give you a heads up. Coming up on Thursday, Joel Rosenberg will join us. He's the author of Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. That's coming up on the program on Thursday. And then on Friday, we have a 9-11 special as Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of that horrific series of events. Well, I woke up this morning. I looked at my car and thought, what on earth Happened. It was such a strange layer of dust. I didn't know if my neighbors had put the uh, sprinkler on and it somehow left an unusual film on my car. Well, lots of people across the Portland, Vancouver metro area woke up this morning to a thin layer of dark ash covering our cars. And that was the case for me. Well, a smoky sky yesterday and a trace of rain overnight left, uh, well, lots of us with ash covered windshields this morning. Um, several wildfires are burning on the west, uh, the, the west slopes of the Cascades, and that produced smoke across western Oregon. Now, we know that there have been fires going on around uh, Oregon and California throughout the summer. This is the first time, at least to my knowledge, that I've experienced the fallout here in the Portland area. Well, according to KGW chief meteorologist Matt Zafino, he explained that the smoke in the metro area on Tuesday night was elevated. And as rain formed at that elevation, when the rain fell, it brought down some of the particles in the smoke and it left a rather interesting film on the car. When cleaning the ash off your car, it's important to remember that wiping the ash um, while it's wet uh, could scrape the paint. So you don't treat that in quite the same way. I, Ended up washing my windshield with the, you know, the stuff that comes in the wiper fluid. But the rest of the car, well, I've got to be more careful with that. If it's wet, you run the risk of scratching and damaging the paint because the particles in the ash can act like sandpaper. Now, if you do have ash or soot on your car and it gets wet, don't wipe it off. Wash it off with water, preferably warm water. If you can manage that, that's not so easy because our hoses don't produce it. Uh, but professional car washes uh, work as well. Now, I'm not sure how that works because they're wet, but then maybe they're warm, but they have all that other activity going on. Well, Zafino also suggested that once the smoke and ash are gone, that people should check their car air filter. Another good idea is to make sure windshield wipers are clean. Uh, I used mine, but I should probably check them. If they're covered in ash, they could scratch the windshield. So lots to think about if you were among uh, those of us who woke up this morning with ash covering your car, and I didn't know until this afternoon what the explanation was. I just knew my car 
was quite filthy, and I didn't remember it looking that bad the night before. So there you have it. Well, Portland city officials may need to backtrack on an order that was issued last week that all employees be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or risk losing their job. Well, officials said that they're reconsidering or considering tweaking that rule to exempt one bureau, and that's the city's police force. Well, the city's attorney office, attorney's office advised city staff on Tuesday that the order requiring Portland's police force to be vaccinated was now legally dubious due to new guidelines from the Oregon Health Authority. Well, under Oregon law, local municipalities can only issue vaccine mandates for firefighters and police officers if there is already a federal or state rule in place that requires it, per an email from Deputy City Attorney Heidi Brown. Well, the city believed that requirement came on the on the 19th rather of August when the governor issued a vaccination mandate for the state's health care workers. Uh, the city felt the governor's definition of health care workers was broad enough to cover police officers who receive some medical training. Well, the city attorney uh, advised the city to move forward with a citywide vaccination mandate that included police. But new guidance related to the governor's vaccine mandate that was delivered to the city late Friday said that police officers were most likely exempt from the state's vaccine mandate. Now, that guidance said law enforcement was probably not subject to the governor's orders as providing medical care was likely not a fundamental part of their job. Well, the updated guidance has forced the city of Portland to reconsider its own mandate. There's no regulation requiring vaccination for police officers. And without this, the city cannot require police be vaccinated. The governor wrote in an email. Well, the rule change uh, would come after fierce backlash against the mandate from the city's police union and others as well, uh, which warned such a requirement would lead to mass resignations within an already short staffed force. Well, Amit Week reported, in fact, that the police unions, uh, their lead attorney had argued that the city uh, to the city, rather, that officers were opposed so deeply that they would leave the force before getting vaccinated, according to um a spokesman, Terry Wallow-Strauss, the Bureau has uh, had 145 sworn Bureau members leave since July of 2020. The Portland Police Bureau said it does not have vaccination rates for its officers. The city hasn't publicly announced any change in policy regarding the vaccination mandate, and it is uh, allowing exemptions to the vaccine requirement for all city staff who have medical or religious reasons for not getting vaccinated that meet legal standards. Multnomah County was thrown into a similar position on Tuesday, like Portland. The county had ordered all employees to be vaccinated by the 18th of next month, including the sheriff's office. Well, as of Tuesday afternoon, county officials said they were reviewing how they were um, impacted by the uh, the state's new guidance. They emphasized that they wanted to see the entire sheriff's department vaccinated, regardless of whether they could ultimately enforce their own mandate, saying we strongly believe that everyone should be vaccinated, especially those people who work in close contact with vulnerable Oregonians. So we'll see how that um, that battle ends up. Meanwhile, Portland State University professor Peter Boghazian uh, has resigned in an open letter in which he accuses the administration of fostering an environment hostile to intellectual inquiry and dissent. Well, the professor, a philosophy professor and well-known uh, critic of woke ideology, said on Wednesday that the university had created a social justice factory where students were taught to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues. 
I never once believed, nor do I now, that the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion, he wrote to Provost Susan Jeffords. Rather, I sought to create the conditions for rigorous thought to help them gain the tools to hunt and furrow for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. But brick by brick, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were uh, uh, inputs were race, gender and victimhood and whose only outputs were grievance and division. He added, he went on to say that students at Portland State are not being taught to think. Rather, they're being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues. Faculty and administrators have abdicated the university's truth-seeking mission and instead drive intolerance of divergent beliefs and opinions. This has created a culture of offense where students are now afraid to speak openly and honestly. Again, Portland State University professor uh, Peter Boghosian has resigned with that open letter. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Mary Graybar, author of Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Well, President Biden was heckled on Afghanistan and climate while touring the Northeast storm damage, asking, um, being asked uh, all this for a expletive photo op. Well, the president heard from hecklers Tuesday as he toured areas damaged by Tropical Storm Ida. Some shouted at him about his chaotic withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Others suggested they were upset about the climate uh, position. Uh, After Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer introduced the president as the man who will lead us out of darkness in this present moment, the president began his remarks in New York City by saying he received a warm reception earlier in New Jersey. None of them were shouting or complaining, the president said. Every one of them was thanking me as if it was something special that I was here. Now, this is bordering on delusional, but that's a quote. The president's assessment didn't appear to be quite accurate. Earlier in the day, he was heckled by protesters in the Garden State when several people castigated him for his handling of Afghanistan and for his um, suggestion that he could um, prevent this kind of storm from happening again by addressing climate change. I won't quote what some of the others had to say, but it was not flattering and certainly contradicted the president's assessment that uh, every one of them was thanking me as if it was something special that I was here. None of them were shouting or complaining. In other developments, the president blames northeast storm damage on climate change, calling on Congress to pass his infrastructure bill. And the president was heckled uh, in New Jersey for standing Americans in Af- or stranding Americans in Afghanistan, saying he will leave you behind, one of the hecklers pointed out. Meanwhile, the president approved Hurricane Ida federal aid for New York. A a, uh, Kamala Harris-backed bail fund freed a Minnesota assault suspect now charged with murder. The bail fund, once backed by the then-Senator, now-Vice President Harris, helped free an alleged domestic abuser who is now accused of murder. George Howard, 48, allegedly became involved in a road rage altercation on the interstate entrance ramp before he shot another driver, according to Minneapolis police, weeks after being bailed out on domestic assault charges. Howard had been uh, out... um, 
on $11,500 bond in connection with the domestic assault case since the 6th of August, court records show. That's when the Minnesota Freedom Fund, which Harris once promoted, bailed him out. On the 29th, he was charged with two counts of second-degree murder in connection with the interstate shooting. The Minnesota Freedom Fund tweeted on Friday admitting to its role in putting Howard back on the streets. On Tuesday, the thread was inaccessible on Twitter. In other developments... um, Tommy Lahren ripped the vice president, saying, we haven't seen this level of tone deafness since American Idol auditions. Uh, Harris plans to campaign for and did for Governor um, Newsom in California this week. A Cawthorn calls on the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Biden as president over the Afghanistan crisis. And Laura Trump, she blasted Kamala Harris on Afghanistan, saying she thinks we'll all forget about this. Well, the vice president says evacuating Americans and Afghan allies is the Biden administration's highest priority. President Biden is demanding billions of for refugees uh, while Americans remain stuck in Kabul. And we learned today uh, that the Taliban is not allowing charter flights uh, with Americans and uh, Afghans who are entitled to leave the country to do that, to leave. Well, the White House is asking Congress for $6.4 billion to resettle tens of thousands of Afghan refugees as part of a request for short-term spending bill to allow for lawmakers to pass a budget for fiscal year 2022. The Office and Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young said that the majority of the funds will go to support processing sites overseas and in the United States and U.S. government transportation for our allies and partners between processing sites and the United States. The proposal also includes funding for humanitarian assistance. It includes a request for $2.1 billion for the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, for costs associated with the evacuation of individuals from Afghanistan. Without the money, the departments would be unable to complete evacuation and relocation efforts from Kabul and worldwide midway points, uh, provide subsequent benefits for evacuated department personnel, provide medical testing, processing through ports of entry, and respond to basic needs requirements of new arrivals or respond to growing humanitarian needs of vulnerable populations inside Afghanistan and Afghans in neighboring countries. The White House also requests $1.6 billion. This is in addition to the $2.1 billion for the refugee uh, entrant and assistance account and $8 million for the children and families account within the Department of Health and Human Services. Meanwhile, the uh, president has missed the deadline to provide the GOP senators who requested it with a number of Americans left behind in Afghanistan. That deadline was set for Tuesday evening, set by Republican senators who demanded he provide the exact number of Americans, green card holders and special immigrant visa applicants who remain in the country. The group of 26 Republicans led by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas gave the president until 5 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday to give the public a full unclassified accounting of who was left behind after the last of the U.S. troops evacuated Kabul on the 30th of last month. They also wanted a detailed account of the vetting process uh, of uh, Kabul on the uh, 30th and Afghan uh, refugees who are not SIVs or green card holders and whether they were evacuated to the U.S. with any pending immigration status. 
President Biden and Biden-Harris administration officials have no idea who has been getting on their planes, but they don't want to admit that that uh, admit that because it would show they stranded Americans and Afghan SIVs while failing to vet plane loads of incoming people. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas told Fox News in a statement, Congress, staffers, veterans, volunteers and NGOs have been working together to save them. But that can't make up for the massive failure by the president and State Department to rescue Americans or their ongoing vetting failures, no matter how much they want to ignore those uh, catastrophes, uh, he said. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee said the Biden administration is clueless. Joe Biden's incompetence and inability to understand foreign policy left 13 U.S. soldiers murdered and others injured, she told um, Fox News in the same interview. Biden willingly left hundreds of Americans stranded behind enemy lines. It is sadly not surprising that the administration is so clueless they are unable to even detail who they abandoned there. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Tuesday that roughly 100 U.S. citizens remain in Afghanistan, roughly. But veteran-led rescue groups told the Associated Press that at estimate is too low and also overlooks the hundreds of permanent legal residents with green cards. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Wednesday called on the Taliban to stop blocking charter flights containing Americans from departing Afghanistan. wonder how effective that will be. The State Department has come under fire for not doing more to pressure the Taliban to allow planes to leave Afghanistan, with reports um, several planes carrying Americans have been stuck in Mazar-e-Sharif International Airport in Kabul. Blinken said during a press conference on Wednesday at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany that the U.S. government has made clear to the Taliban that these charter charters need to be able to depart. Again, there's absolutely no force behind that. Uh, that statement, those flights need to be able to leave in the United States government, State Department. We are doing everything we can to help make that happen. Uh, those flights need to move. I pointed out some of the uh, complications that are there, but those flights need to move, end quote. Well, Blinken's comments came after he confirmed Tuesday that the State Department had identified a relatively small number of Americans trying to evacuate from that airport in uh, Kabul, but he denied the Taliban was creating any hostage-like situation. They're being um, prevented from leaving, but they're not in a hostage-like situation. It's my understanding, he went on to say, that the Taliban has not denied exit to anyone holding a valid document, but they have said that those without valid documents at this point can't leave. But because all of these people are grouped together, that's meant that uh, flights have not been allowed to go. And China is considering deploying military personnel and economic development officials to Bagram Airfield, perhaps the single most prominent symbol of the 20-year U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. The Chinese military is currently conducting a feasibility study about the effect of sending workers, soldiers, and other staff related to its foreign economic investment program, known as the Belt and Road Initiative in the coming years, to Bagram, according to a source briefed on the study by the Chinese military officials who spoke to the U.S. News on condition of anonymity. A spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Tuesday issued a carefully crafted denial of plans for an imminent takeover of the military airfield roughly an hour from Kabul, first established by the Soviets during their own occupation of Afghanistan and which, at the height of the U.S. military presence there, was its busiest in the world. What I can tell everyone is that that is a piece of purely false information. That's a quote from Wang Winbang. 
Um, speaking to reporters, China has reportedly or repeatedly denied many of its other military deployments beyond its border. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Mary Graybar, author of Debunking the 1619 Project. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York Times 1619 Project claims that America was not founded in 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but in 1619 with the introduction of African slavery into the New World. Well, ever since then, the increasingly popular 1619 Project argues American history has been one long sordid tale of systematic racism. Well, celebrated historians have debunked this. However, it persists. How can we share this message with our next generation of Americans when they're being taught this distorted narrative that supports critical race theory? Well, debunking the 1619 Project, exposing the plan to divide America by historian and passionate educator Dr. Mary Graybar, provides an extensive look at the divisive and false tactics used to associate America with the exact opposite values of its founding. In a world where schools are, well, fallaciously teaching that America is a country that perpetuates an endless cycle of oppression, debunking the 1619 Project is crucial reading for the preservation of factual American history. Dr. Graybar reveals uh, statistics um, that alarmingly display how divisive the project is, uprooting the history and culture of American life. Well, Dr. Mary Graybar is the author of Debunking Howard Zen, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. That was published by Regnery back in 2019. She's a conservative commentator and resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization in Clinton, New York. After earning her Ph.D. in English from the University of Georgia in 2002, she taught at a number of of colleges and universities in Georgia, most recently Emory University. Uh, University rather. In 2011, she founded the uh, Dissident Prof-, Prof Education Project, Inc., a 501c3 education reform initiative. She writes uh, frequently for such outlets as The Federalist, Epic Times, American Spectator, and I could go on and on and on, but I don't want to deprive you of the opportunity to hear what she has to say from her very important book. So, Dr. Graybar, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's begin with the uh, the 1619 Project. Now, this is relatively new to those of us uh, who are living today, but 1619 isn't a date at which it is, is altogether obscure. Give us a little bit of the history of 1619 as it was perceived um, in the past and what this 1619 Project that was featured in the New York Times uh, is today. Yes. Uh, well, that's a great question. Um The year 1619 was not an unknown date. Mm -hmm. Um, It was marketed that way in order to sell the magazine and the uh, products that are going along with it. It's been well known in, uh, you know, black history in the African-American community. It has been seen as a date um, that was akin to, uh, you know, uh, Pilgrim's Landing, and um, but it, it was a date from which uh, you know they had risen, um, and so it's been well known. There were other publications that marked the 400th anniversary uh, of the landing of the uh, White Lion, a ship. It was a privateer that brought. Um, we don't know exactly how many Africans that had been, um, you know, sold to the Portuguese and then captured uh, by the British. 
but there are 20 to 30. We don't know what date exactly. We don't know exactly what their status was. We know that they were in servitude when they came, but they were literally working side by side in the fields with the indentured servants from England. Um, They may have been slaves, they may have been indentures, they may have had longer indentures, but the fact is that it's not the way the 1619 Project presents it, that, you know, here they landed and poof, we have slavery, and uh, since that year, we have been building our riches on the backs of slaves. Slavery evolved over the course of the 17th century. As a matter of fact, as I point out in debunking the 1619 Project, the first person who won a court case in Virginia in 1654 to own a slave was one of those initial Africans. So he was a black man who owned a black slave. Well, let's talk about what the, the purpose of the New York Times publication of the 1619 Project uh, is. Obviously, they have rejected 1776 as the founding of America and look to 1619 as a, something of a slaveocracy that <laughs> reflects what the true purpose and meaning of the founding of what is now a republic uh, was all about. Can you explain how the 1619 Project explains that and what meaning, in in their view, Uh, 1776 has, if any. Right. Well, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was a document of um, hypocrisy, according to the 1619 Project. So the 1619 Project is basically operating from a Marxist premise. So the nation is not founded on the basis of deliberation, of ideas, of knowledge, of principles, uh, you know, as happened with the writing of the Declaration of Independence and then putting the Constitution together. It's rather a, a materialist view. So what we are is nothing more than you know, the wealth uh, and the labor. So that is a a Marxist outlook. And so in that way, they are able to to justify or rationalize replacing 1776 with 1619. Um, So the idea of a republic or a representative democracy is really... um, not an important concept. It's more of, you know, the labor and the physical aspect and the material aspects that are important. So when they flip those things around, they can say, well, 1619 is the founding, of course, claiming that, you know, immediately these Africans were slaves. Now, one of the things you point out in the book is that 1619 was remembered historically uh, even among um, African-Americans or black Americans um, years ago, the 300th anniversary, I think, in particular, uh, they they commemorated that date. The first um, blacks brought here either as slaves or indentured servitudes and uh, under indentured servitude. Um, but they they uh, commemorated that occasion quite differently. How uh, can you contrast the 1619 project of the 21st century and that of the recognition of that occasion historically. 
Yes. Um, so the earliest, um, you know, African-American historians, you know, started off their histories with the year 1619. Um, they often bookended it with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 or maybe 1865 at the end of the Civil War. Uh in 1919, it was commemorated at churches, uh, I believe in Charleston, there was a, a commemoration that was attended by a thousand people. The editorials said, you know, uh, yeah, this was a kind of ignominious um, beginning, but look at how far we have come. And so it was a, a mark uh, from which to, uh, you know, measure progress. Progress was achieved. So even in the Crisis Magazine, which is the journal of the NAACP, it, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, no conservative, you know, marked the date. And so that was 100 years ago. But if you read the 1619 project in comparison, you would think that we had just really slipped backwards <laughs> that, you know, we, we had had no civil rights movement. There were no laws enacted. We had made no progress. We had actually slipped back and um, living with the legacy of slavery. Well, let's talk about what the motivation behind the 1619 project is and what the creators want to accomplish. I mean, I'm, I'm the descendant of slaves. It's it's meaningful to me to know that history, not not the 1619 project, but to know the history of when blacks were first brought to the, the continent and what happened uh, following. But what what are the intentions and the motivation of the uh, the developer, the writer of the 1619 project? Well, I, the motivations are basically Marxist. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones mm-hmm. has expressed her admiration for Fidel Castro and Cuba. She took a, a, a trip there and wrote about it glowingly. And uh, she has come out for reparations uh, as a form of redistribution of wealth. She wrote a long article about that in June 2020 in the New York Times Magazine. So, and her politics are the politics of the squad of the Democratic Party. Um, You know, every left-wing cause uh, she supports. And so the purpose of this, um, you know, project and the lessons in the schools is to claim that we have not made any progress that, uh, you know, we are living with virtual slavery still and that our form of government is not really a, a good form of government. We need to change it. We need to make it more socialistic. Um, you know, the what the founders envisioned uh, was based on hypocrisy. Uh, they weren't serious. They weren't honest about their motives. And so we need to change it. We need to have a socialistic government. And, um, and, and that's what they want. The goal is a political goal. Uh, it's to make students doubt um, their own form of government, the form of government we have, and um, to throw question into the progress that has been made. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Mary Graybar. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the 1619 Project is on the forefront of both historical study and political fervor. Debunking the 1619 Project by Dr. Mary Graybar, my guest, is an extensive look at the divisive and false tactics that are used to equate America with the exact opposite qualities of its founding freedom. Uh, and um, and a disruptive cycle of oppression. Dr. Graybar is a, a philanthropist, a conservative commentator, passionate educator, and author. Her new book, Debunking the 1619 Project, is an essential read for everyone concerned, parents, citizens, school board members, policymakers, to understand what lay behind what has become a very popular and, uh, to my thinking, destructive movement. Now, the goal of the 1619 Project is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's true founding. This has been widely embraced, and how widely is it being implemented as a, a, a teaching tool, and at what levels are we seeing that? Yes, well, an estimate is that three-quarters of the schools are using this, and it's adapted in lessons for K through 12. Um, So it is uh, all over the place. There are a lot of partners that are promoting it and distributing it. Besides the Pulitzer Center, there's the National Education Association, there's Scholastic, um, there's a news service called Newzela. So uh, there are a lot of different partners working. Teachers are being given grants. I call them bribes to incorporate uh, this material in their classroom instruction. They're given like $5,000. There are teacher workshops. Nicole Hannah-Jones has even led these online discussions for teachers. So um, they are being encouraged uh, to use this in the classroom. I had lunch earlier today with a friend and she asked, you know, who I was interviewing today. I told her about the book. I told her about you. And she asked me, but is it true? The the question was, is the 1619 Project true? Have historians, uh, has it been peer reviewed? Have historians uh, endorsed the 1619 Project as accurate uh, retelling of history or not? Because I think that's the bottom line. If we're going to reject the project, Uh, whether or not it reflects uh, truth and what actually is our nation's history. Yes, well, it is not true. A number of historians, dozens of them, very distinguished historians, came out and objected to specific points um, that has been going on. Uh, You know, it's, you know, paragraph by paragraph, you can go through it, uh, if you just look at the literature, even, you know, when she claims that, you know, that the Africans were kidnapped by the Europeans, well, that's not true. There is a wealth of information. Uh, the scholarship on slavery is vast. It has exploded since the 1960s. I can I can tell you that from looking at it. And it is just not true. Um, no one can claim that because it never happened. The few times the Portuguese tried to do that, they were just wiped out. Um, So they did have to have the cooperation of other Africans who raided other villages and then acted as middlemen. So even from that point, you uh, you can't deny that that is a false claim. Um, But, you know, the the supporters of her don't mention that. They just ignore it. So it's a 
presented in isolation. And that's one of the dangers of the whole project. It pretends that slavery was something that was unique uh, to this country and that, in fact, it may have been invented here. Whereas it's the oldest institution we have, it goes back to as far as human history goes. And in some places was not ended until the 1980s. That's correct. In Mauritania, 1980, and even to this day, we have slavery going on in Mauritania. It's it's not legal, but it's still going on. And we know about uh, the Muslim minority in China and uh you know, I think in the Sudan, it's still going on. You um, uh, reflect on Henry Louis Gates Jr., who wrote in the New York Times back in 2010, and he charged advocates of reparations, and now I'm quoting from your book, with ignoring the untidy problem of the significant role that Africans played in the trade, and instead choosing to believe the romanticized version that our ancestors were all kidnapped unawares by evil white men. It's a very interesting article, and he um, he puts in the broader context how slavery was so successful and the role that, that Africans in the areas where slavery was uh, most prominent played a significant role. And you also um, make reference to one African writer who um, wants desperately to... Um, to have Africans atone for the role that was played, this, the slave trade, particularly in the United States and Europe, would not have been nearly as successful had there not been cooperation among Africans at the time. Yes, that's correct. And that was a Wall Street Journal article. It was very good. It was written by a Nigerian woman who herself is the descendant of uh, slave traders. And she interviewed a number of people and some felt guilty about it. Others said, you know, well, that happened long ago. I'm not responsible. And you really have to look at that other side of the equation. It would be, I don't know how uh, the slaves could have been brought here without, you know, that cooperation. And um, so you have to look at that part. You can't only have a buyer. You need a seller. And they were the sellers. And interestingly, of course, that article that came out shortly after the 1619 project was just ignored. And I, you know, I read it and it's it's kind of eye opening. But you don't hear about that at all in the discussion today. Well, slavery, certainly whatever form it took, whether it's in the United States or Europe or in the Middle East or other parts of the world, um, has been rejected, uh, and the United States has taken great lengths to try to remedy it, far too slow and far too little at times, to remedy the uh, fallout from slavery. But but let me ask you, why is it important that the 1619 Project be repudiated, and what difference will it make uh, in terms of uh, people understanding the, the founding of the republic, and it's moving forward in terms of the kind of nation that we uh, that we want to and do have? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, first of all, it's dividing Americans. And uh, just like the communists of old, they uh, saw the weak point uh, in America in 1919 when the party was established. And that was, you know, that there was Jim Crow, there were lynchings, and they exploited that. And they tried to uh, rub that sore raw and, uh, you know, 
produce conflict and division. And that's what the 1619 Project is aiming to do. It's not an honest history. Uh, history is complicated. People change throughout their lives. Uh, people don't act according to their groups, whether it's racial or class or whatever. And in order to really understand history, you have to put it into the context. So in 1776, slavery was practiced worldwide. Uh, it wasn't practiced in Western Europe, but it was practiced in the European colonies. So it was something that was just accepted. And with the Declaration of Independence, we, ha you know, that was such inspiration for the world to then look at slavery, look at that barbaric a uh, cruel practice and end it. And it was, you know, the Christians, the Quakers who, uh, you know, started speaking out about it. And so, the, you know, there has been progress and we need to acknowledge that instead of presenting this false picture that, you know, we are still in the thrall of slavery. Well, Dr. Graybar, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. Once again, the book is Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. I appreciate your joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show News and Traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Mark Hilton is engineering today's program, James Blend producing. Coming up in the last segment of this hour, we're going to talk about the Family Research Council's Biblical Worldview Survey that determines or at least revealed how people who believe themselves to have embraced a biblical worldview, well, maybe not so much. That's coming up in our final segment today. Well, Fort McCoy has been hit by a case of measles with the, the Afghan refugees resettlement effort. Not sure where that uh, originated from. The U.S. State Department on Afghan refugees in the U.S. says we're doing accountings on the back end. In other words, you have people boarding planes. We don't really know who they are. They're not among those that the United States made promises to. And so now they're trying to do accountings on the back end. The U.S. is sending any Afghan flagged for criminal or terror ties to Kosovo, according to officials. How you make that determination at this point, it's uh, got to be something of a challenge. According to Representative Tiffany, unvetted um, Afghan refugees have been allowed to leave the Wisconsin military base unsupervised. Now, the concern isn't that your rank and file Afghan is going to be a problem, but that uh, terrorists could have infiltrated the crowds who flew out of uh, Afghanistan during the uh, the period that U.S. military were on the ground. Well, the top general says the U.S. military is prepared to house and feed Afghan refugees as long as it takes. Well, former President Donald Trump and his son Don Jr. plan to provide commentary for Evander Holyfield's return to the ring. And a New York House candidate was found dead after dropping out of the race. It's still something of a mystery. The American Airlines Pilots Union is planning to strike over fatigue and overscheduling. And Boeing shareholders may pursue 737 MAX claims against the board, according to a court ruling. BlackRock responded to George Soros' criticism of its China investments. And the GOP has requested telecom firms preserve Democrats' phone records. I'm not sure 
how they intend to uh, to use that information or access it. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Wednesday warned congressional leaders that the U.S. is on track to default on the national debt in October if the White House and Congress are unable to raise the debt limit. Well, in a Wednesday letter, Yellen said that the Treasury Department would likely run out of cash and exhaust extraordinary measures to keep the federal government within its legal borrowing limit at some point next month. Once all uh, available measures and cash on hand are fully exhausted, the United States of America would be unable to meet its obligations for the first time in our history, Yellen said. Well, given this uncertainty, the Treasury Department is not able to provide a specific estimate of how long the extraordinary measures will last. However, based on our best and most recent information, the most likely outcome is that cash and extraordinary measures will be exhausted during the month of October. That's next month, by the way. Well, Janet Yellen wrote the letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Treasury Department has taken so-called extraordinary measures to prevent the U.S. from defaulting on the national debt since the federal debt limit was reimposed on the 1st of August. If the Treasury Department runs out of uh, ways to stave off a default without borrowing more money, the inability of the U.S. to pay its debts could send debilitating shockwaves through the financial system. Yellen urged lawmakers for months to raise the debt limit before it was reimposed in August, warning that a delay could cause irreparable damage to the U.S. economy and global financial markets. She's also since pleaded with Congress to give Treasury the ability to pay debts already approved by previous presidents and congressional um, majorities. Waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm to business and consumer confidence, raise short-term interest rates and borrowing costs for taxpayers, and negatively impact the credit rating of the United States, she wrote. At a time when American families, communities, and businesses are still suffering from the effects of the ongoing global pandemic, it would be um, particularly irresponsible to put the full uh, faith and credit of the United States at stake. Even so... Democrats and Republicans are locked in a stalemate over who bears responsibilities for protecting the full faith and credit of the U.S. Well, the White House and Democratic leaders are planning to uh, tie a debt limit increase to another must-pass government funding bill, daring Republicans to trigger both a government shutdown and a default by opposing the measure. We fully expect, the White House official uh, said, Congress to act promptly to suspend the debt limit and protect the full faith and credit of the United States. And we expect them to do so in a bipartisan way, just as they did three times during the prior administration, the White House official said on Tuesday. However, that wasn't tethered to a um, a rather large spending bill. Republicans, well, they've refused to raise the debt ceiling unless spending cuts and debt reduction uh, programs are attached. Democrats could also try to jam a debt ceiling increase into the uh, pending $3.5 trillion infrastructure, climate, and social services bill. They're attempting to uh, pass through budget reconciliation, but even some Democrats are going to make the way a bit challenging. Passing the bill would only require simple majorities in each party, but the package um, may not be ready for a vote before the U.S. breaches that debt limit. Well, Janet Yellen has uh, warned for months that the U.S. could default as soon as October explaining that the economic impact and the fiscal response to the coronavirus pandemic makes it hard to determine exactly when. Earlier analysis from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office and the Bipartisan Policy Institute, a think tank that closely tracks the debt limit, found the U.S. may not reach a default until November. 
Well, New York Attorney General Letitia James' office has subpoenaed a state ethics board for records pertaining to former Governor Andrew Cuomo's memoir on the early months of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the grand jury subpoena, first reported uh, in the Albany Times Union, was issued as part of a criminal investigation by the attorney general into whether Cuomo, then Governor Cuomo, violated state law by having his staff work on his book. The specific focus of the subpoena was not immediately clear, and the issuance of the subpoena doesn't necessarily indicate that a grand jury is currently reviewing evidence in that investigation. Cuomo special counsel Judith Mogul told the New York Joint Commission on Public Ethics that staff would not be involved in production of the book, the book rather, when the former governor requested approval for the project in July of 2020. However, senior aides and junior staffers worked on drafts of the book even before Mogul sent the request, according to uh, earlier drafts of the memoir uh, that was uh, reviewed by the New York Times earlier this year. The book, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, received an advance uh, of cover for million dollars. People familiar with the matter told The Times. Well, some of the junior staffers who aided production of the book told The Times that they did not feel their work was voluntary. Any state official who volunteered to assist on this project did so on his or her own time and without the use of state resources, Cuomo's advisor said back in April. Well, Cuomo resigned in August after the attorney general published the results of a separate civil investigation that detailed allegations against the governor by 11 women of sexual harassment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, four out of five Gitmo detainees that were swapped for Bo Bergdahl were given leadership positions in the Taliban government, we learned yesterday. According to Congressman Austin Scott, details um, uh, are still developing. What is our State Department concerned with? That the uh, Taliban don't have women in leadership. That was their primary concern. CNN seems surprised to discover no woman or members of Afghanistan's ousted leadership were selected for acting cabinet positions or named to advisory roles in spite of the Taliban's promises of an inclusive government and more moderate form of Islamic rule. They were surprised. Uh, the new interior minister is a wanted terrorist. In fact, there is a bounty on his head. Seth Jones points out the Taliban's appointment days before the 20th anniversary of the terror attack is nothing less than a slap in the face of the U.S. and its Western allies. Nikki Haley, the former ambassador, says, I can't believe this is even necessary to say, but under this administration, it is America. Uh, it is America must not recognize the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. A video game company fired its CEO, well, not because he embezzled funds or uh, it was engaged in inappropriate conduct among co-workers. John Gibson, the CEO of Tripwire, tweeted support for the Supreme Court decision on the, the Texas law, the pro-life law. In his uh, briefing, Dr. Albert Moeller looks deeper into the politics of abortion. You can find that online, and I would certainly recommend it. Uh, but the CEO was fired for his pro-life position. A story claims Democrat Joe Manchin won't support more than $1.5 trillion in the spending plan that's coming up shortly, despite Biden's desire to uh, spend $3.5 trillion. Eric Erickson says the report comes out after AOC was on Anderson Cooper criticizing Manchin. Not smart diplomacy on her part to make a play for all or nothing. Texas governor has signed the elections overhaul, the very election change that sent Democrats into hiding in the state. Dan Crenshaw says finally 
election integrity measures passed in Texas. The meltdown over this common sense law was always pure theater, by the way. Uh, uh, Voters won't even notice the changes, but cheaters will. Well, despite the anger over the recent Texas law, more Californians are moving to Texas than any other state. Well, many in the media were embarrassed by a fake ivermectin story. It apparently started when somebody in the media ridiculed Joe Rogan for using the medicine after he got COVID-19. From Rogan, I literally got it from a doctor. It's an American company. They won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for use in human beings. And CNN is saying I'm taking horse dewormer. They must know that's a lie. Well, then a bunch of outlets ran with a fake story about a hospital overrun with patients overdosing on the drug. Drew Holden posted a series of screenshots from media who fell for it from Rolling Stone to Rachel Maddow. Well, nearly three in four unvaccinated Americans would rather quit their jobs than get vaccinated. Just 18 percent said they would do so if required. And a Florida judge on Wednesday permitted public school to reimpose mask mandates there, rejecting Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' appeal of his previous ruling. By Second Circuit Judge John Cooper's order, Florida is prohibited from enforcing the mask mandate ban, allowing school districts to def- uh, that defied DeSantis to maintain the practice. Well, the development uh, came after an earlier decision from Cooper in which he argued that DeSantis overstepped his authority in banning public institutions from implementing mask mandates. He said in his opinion that Florida law does not support a statewide order or any action interfering with the constitutionally provided authority of local school districts to provide for the safety and health of children based on the unique facts on the ground in a particular county. Well, even as the recall nears, California Governor Newsom sends his kids to in-person private school, while many California children are forced out of the public classrooms and haven't the funds to go elsewhere. Well, siblings who were born 18 months apart discover they're actually twins. Well, apparently both were conceived through in vitro fertilization, with one having been frozen. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci is uh, facing calls to resign again and answers for a report about U.S. government funded Wuhan research. It's really quite fascinating. Four Taliban members swapped for Bo Bergdahl are now leaders in the Taliban Afghan government. A trip down memory lane. The GAO says Barack Obama's prisoner swap broke the law. That was uh, reported on NPR. The Chinese are muscling in on Afghanistan's rare earth mineral deposits, creating more headaches for President Biden. And ICE counts 463 sanctuary jails and prisons in the U.S. and another 156 give limited cooperation. Well, a House Republican is demanding Hunter Biden's art dealer assist in investigating White House corruption. And Democrats are poised for a bitter September spending battle within their own ranks. The human rights campaign has fired its president, Alfonso David, after he advised Andrew Cuomo during the sexual misconduct scandal. The ACLU denounced pandemic mandates before COVID-19. Well, now there are four pandemic mandates. South Dakota's governor has banned telemedicine abortions. Now, those two things put together, I'm not quite sure how that works, but nonetheless, they're banned in South Dakota. Oregon residents are outraged by a video of flagrant shoplifting, perhaps uh, taking their uh, uh, their lead from what's happening in California, where the law does not permit prosecution or apprehension for that matter.
Well, odds of a breakthrough COVID infection worsen with the Delta variant. It's being reported. And University of California doctors are challenging its vaccine mandate as irrational. Colleges are penalizing unvaccinated students. In fact, one student who had no intention of coming to campus was told he could not study. He could not access online resources because he's not vaccinated. He cannot study from home because he's not vaccinated. Well, a Rutgers student says he's being stopped from taking virtual classes for that very reason. Virtual classes. Perhaps there's a misunderstanding of what that means. Well, Satanists are apparently demanding a religious exemption to perform the abortion ritual in the state of Texas. And Biden's inflation woes are persisting with production stoppages at the big three automakers. Mexico decriminalized abortion, a dramatic step in the world's second largest Catholic country. Well, Catholics are frustrated as an increasing number of attacks on churches go unnoticed. Started in Canada, but it's spreading elsewhere. Well, on this day in history, 1565, a Spanish expedition establishes the first permanent European settlement in North America at present-day St. Augustine, Florida. 1664, the Dutch surrender New Amsterdam to the British, who rename it New York. 1892, an early version of the Pledge of Allegiance, written by Francis Bellamy, appears in The Youth's Companion. It went... I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 1900, Galveston, Texas. A, uh, it's struck by a hurricane that kills an estimated 8,000 people. 1941, the 900-day siege of Leningrad by German forces begins during World War II. 900-day siege. 1964, public schools in Prince Edward County, Virginia, reopen after being closed for five years by officials attempting to prevent court-ordered racial desegregation. 1974, President Gerald R. Ford grants a full, free, and absolute pardon to former President Richard Nixon, covering his entire term in office. 1986, the Oprah Winfrey Show begins the first of 25 seasons in national syndication. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, a New York City subway station reopens for the first time since it was destroyed in the World Trade Center attack 17 years ago. That's in 2018. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about new, the new school year and new options that the, uh, uh, that the year brings for kids and families. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that Key Life Network with Steve Brown is back on KPDQ. We're welcoming Steve Brown and uh, Key Life Network here uh, weekdays at 9.30 p.m. Steve works to communicate the inspiring truth of the grace we have in Christ Jesus. How can we apply that truth to our daily lives as well as sharing it with others is the theme. Airing weekdays, 9.30 p.m. on 93.9 KPDQ. Check it out. Well, over a million additional students will be eligible to use private school choice options this school year, thanks to the legislative boom across the country in 2021. Accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, curriculum controversies related to uh, CRT, 18 states have either expanded or established a combined 28 school choice programs 
earning 2021 the title of the Year of Educational Choice by many. Well, public opinion shows that support for school choice has reached an all-time high. In June of this year, a poll shows that 74% of voters support parents' ability to choose where their child is educated. The largest jumps in public opinion were among K-12 through public school parents, climbing from 67% in April of 2020 to 80%. School choice even gained support among Democrats, climbing from 59 to 70%. Well, state lawmakers responded to families. They turned to school choice in a big way. They saw the problem with re- with relying on current one-size-fits-all K-12 through education systems, which is supposed to serve the needs of a diverse population and gave families a better alternative. Of the seven new programs, Kentucky, Missouri, New Hampshire, West Virginia, and Indiana established education savings accounts, flexible savings accounts where parents can spend on a variety of educational resources that include but not uh, are not limited to tuition, tutoring, online learning programs, special education services, and more. And these programs aren't only the for families with low incomes either. The education savings accounts in West Virginia, for example, they're available to 93% of K-12 students, respectively. Minority students who are given school choice benefit significantly across the country when that is, in fact, the case. Well, as students head back to school or headed now, the day has uh, has come to a close. We can check some predictions made last year about how COVID would uh, change K through 12 classrooms. First, teachers unions forecast that schools would close in large numbers without additional federal spending. In June of last year, American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten uh, said that we need the money for PPE, personal protective equipment, and we need the money for extra teachers. We need the money for extra cleaning and extra buses. Well, Washington obliged, and since uh, March of last year, the federal government has committed some $200 billion in COVID relief funds to K-12 through schools. Well, apparently the schools didn't need it, or they, if they did need it, they had a funny way of showing it. According to research from Dr. from Dan Lips, rather, uh, $180 billion of those funds remain unspent. Well, that's a point worth emphasizing. Schools around the country opened this month, even in the midst of the uncertainties caused by the Delta variant, and they still haven't spent most of the money teachers union said would be required to get schools running again. We can safely say this first prediction was wrong. A second one, public, private, and homeschool operations won't return to normal anytime soon. Well, as uh, the Heritage Foundation research tracked last year, some of the largest districts in the U.S. saw significant enrollment declines in the 2020-2021 school year. Arizona reported that 50,000 students vanished last fall, uh, while Massachusetts saw 4% enrollment decline statewide. New York City officials reported 3% fewer students, and enrollment decline also uh, were documented in Montana, Wisconsin, Missouri, and North Carolina. Now, is that just because of the pandemic? Will it bounce back now that uh, things have opened up? Well, while schools were shut, parents created online, or rather, learning pods, and many state legislatures adopted proposals that gave those parents and students more options in education. Combine those phenomena with survey uh, demonstrating that homeschooling is on the rise during the pandemic. It was easy to predict that 2021-22 was not going to be like the prior school year. The results of one recent study may be a sign of things to come. Enrollment figures from 319 Indiana private schools show that 288 reported increases over the last three years. Nearly half, that's 154 of them, reported increases between the last school year and this one. In some instances, enrollment increased 
uh, increases rather were phenomenal. 49 schools reported increases of at least 150 percent. Well, lawmakers in Indiana, they expanded the state private school voucher program, which would account for some of the change. But reporter Anthony Kennett cites parents' dissatisfaction with mask policies and curriculum choices as two other reasons parents often give in explaining their decisions to move to private schools. A sifting of parents and students into different learning environments continues as the virus uh, continues, and there are unmistakable signals that traditional public school enrollment is trending down. Contrary to the first forecast, this one appears to be coming true. And finally, learning pods are here to stay, and some predicted this in 2020. State leaders in places like Pennsylvania and Maine, they tried to regulate the pods. Parents have uh, proved resilient, however. At the beginning of the school year, with the positive COVID test still concerning um, uh, educators, parents, and lawmakers, they're turning to pods again. But this time, participants have the benefit of experience. In New Hampshire, for example, state officials partnered with uh, Prenda, It's a learning pod company based in Arizona, and they're awarding grants to school districts to create learning pods. Two weeks ago, the New Hampshire Department of Education announced that four districts had been awarded grants to launch said pods. Well, news reports uh, from New Jersey and Florida say parents are forming pods again this year, while school officials in Arkansas say they're using small group sessions similar to learning pods in classrooms to start the year. Well, one new prediction for the uh, current 2021-22 Um, academic year. Parents will not wait to make choices about their child's learning. Districts dithered over reopening plans last year, even as research demonstrated that schools were not COVID super spreaders. Meanwhile, parents found solutions such as pods to meet their child's needs. While some state officials continue to respond to parents' preferences by helping them access a different school if a child's school closes or adopts a COVID policy, masks, for example, that parents disagree with. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey announced such a choice policy on the 17th of last month. Well, it's safe to expect that uh, parents will not wait because they'll not have to wait for districts or, uh, to decide if and when to reopen in the face of COVID this fall. They will just leave and come up with other alternatives. Meanwhile, Senator Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, says newly public documents revealing the extent of U.S. funding of coronavirus research in Wuhan, China, show that the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, the head, Dr. Anthony Fauci, lied during his previous testimony to Congress. That's a pretty strong word. Fauci has adamantly denied that the National Institutes of Health funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Paul blasted Fauci in a Tuesday tweet saying... The NIAID director had lied again, and I was right about this. his agency funding novel coronavirus research at Wuhan. Paul's tweet followed a story in The Intercept that revealed the U.S. government pumped $3.1 million into American health organization EcoHealth Alliance to back back coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. According to the report, almost $600,000 of that federal money was particularly used Uh, by the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to find and alter bat coronaviruses that could jump to humans and infect them. Additionally, the documents revealed that experimental research on genetically engineered mice with human cell receptors was conducted at the Wuhan University Center for Animal Experiment and not the Wuhan 
uh, Institute of Virology, as previously thought. The documents make it clear that assertions by the uh, NIH director, Francis Collins, and the NIAID director, Anthony Fauci, that the NIH did not support gain-of-function research or potential pandemic pathogen enhancement at WIV at Wuhan uh, are untruthful. Rutgers University chemical biology professor Richard Ebright wrote in a Tuesday Twitter thread, well, the um, senator and Dr. Fauci, both medical doctors by training, haven't minced words when butting heads with one another. The Kentucky Republican accused Fauci of lying about gain of function research during a July hearing on the COVID-19 Delta variant. I've never lied before Congress, and I do not retract that statement, Fauci said at the time. He added that the research Paul referenced was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. Fauci added, you do not know what you're talking about, uh, quite frankly, and I want to uh, say that officially. Well, Paul's response was that the NIH's judgment defines away work that essentially was gain of function research. You're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibly uh, responsibility, Paul added at the time. But the uh, uh, the question of whether or not the U.S. supported gain of function remains an open question with new evidence coming in. Well, the president is working to secure the border. Well, the border of Tajikistan, the Biden administration is working with the government of Tajikistan to help it better secure its border with its neighbor to the south, the newly chaotic Afghanistan. As the U.S. ambassador to Tajikistan explained, the United States and the country enjoy strong security cooperation. And this border detachment project is just another example of our shared commitment to the security and sovereignty of the country and Central Asia. A feel good story. Of the day. Well, the U.S. government has spent over $300 million helping Tajikistan with security since 2002. The recent announcements uh, coincide with their pledge to accept upwards of 100,000 Afghan refugees. Oh, and by the way, Tajikistan is still a member of Russia's post Soviet security bloc. So at least there's some interest in securing the border. Well, a different border. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you tomorrow we're going to have a lengthy conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. It certainly is once again very timely. He'll be joining us in the first hour, but that will probably straddle uh, the first and second hours. So keep that in mind. That's coming up tomorrow. Joel Rosenberg. Well, did you know that 81% of those who regularly attend an evangelical church think that they have a biblical worldview? But in reality, only 21% actually do. Well, that's according to a new study from the Center for Biblical Worldview with the Family Research Council and George Barna. Well, this paints a pretty sobering picture of American religious life. Many aren't hearing the truth, and we need to change that. That's what the Biblical Worldview Center is all about. Well, this new national survey from the Family Research Council's center reveals that the majority of Americans think they have a biblical worldview, but a look beneath the surface reveals otherwise. Now, they surveyed folks asking questions to determine if what um, was perceived to be a worldview consistent with what the scriptures teach was actually present or mistaken. According to George Barna, Family Research Council's senior research fellow, a fellow rather for the Center for Biblical Worldview, 
A worldview is the intellectual, moral, emotional, and spiritual filter through which a person sees and responds to the world. And as this survey reveals, many see the world through a lens other than the Bible. Well, this is not only true amongst evangelical churchgoers, but also the general American population. Out of American adults, 51% claim to have a biblical worldview. However, research indicated that just 6% of the adult population actually has that worldview. While these findings are troubling, they show how much work remains to be done in the church, let alone the broader culture. Among the findings from the Family Research Council's Center on Biblical Worldview, 80% of born-again Christians, and this is self-identified, claim to have a biblical worldview, but only 19% actually have one. 74% of conservatives claim to have a biblical worldview, but only 16% do. So to claim oneself to be conservative uh, does not necessarily reflect a biblical worldview. 44% of millennials claim a biblical worldview. Only 4% have one. There's a gap between perception and reality for most Americans, according to the Center for Biblical Worldview. There are massive inconsistencies between what American adults believe and what the Bible actually teaches. And the results underscore the the need for the Center for Biblical Worldview that the Family Research Council has uh, developed. Well, the council's um, center seeks to help Christians defend and advance the faith in their families, within their communities, and the public square by providing uh, biblically-based resources that are intended to help reverse the trend of biblical illiteracy. Now, the presumption is individuals uh, who uh, participated in the survey um, presumably believed themselves to have a, a worldview that was consistent with what the Scriptures teached and found that to be desirable. Well, to view the resor- uh, the resources, uh, you can go to the Center uh, for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. It contains all of the latest articles and interviews and publications that they have recently published. And you can check out their uh, Biblical Worldview series. It's a series of booklets that apply the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. It uh, distinguishes between what the culture embraces and what the Bible actually teaches. Well, at the Center for Biblical Worldview, they want to offer content that supports the ministry. Uh, So to that end, they've made it available. Now, again, you can uh, find uh, more information on their website, the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. Now, this uh, survey that they conducted, Perceptions About Biblical Worldview and Its Application, a national survey for the Center for Biblical Worldview, is also available online. In May of 2021, the Family Research Council's Center commissioned Metaformation, Inc., under the direction of George Barna, to conduct a nationwide survey regarding aspects of biblical worldview. Well, the objective was to provide original, newsworthy, research-based insights about how many people believe they possess a biblical worldview, uh, if and to what extent they seek to integrate that worldview into every uh, dimension of life, what influences have helped them to do so, and whether they believe that such integration matters to God. Uh, the results of the survey were publicly announced and launched at an event in Washington, D.C., Earlier this year, now the survey itself was fielded in mid-May with a national sample of about a thousand adults randomly selected and interviewed by telephone from across the country. 
The survey questionnaire contained 37 questions. It took an average of 17 minutes for respondents to complete. So it's a relatively small sample group, and you should keep that in mind. Well, the research analysis provided a summary of key perspectives on several important subgroups of the public that uh, represent uh, markets that they're uh, trying to reach um, within the Christian community. Again, among the key findings, 51% of adults claim to have a biblical worldview, but a significantly lower percentage actually, when answering questions, reflected that they hold a biblical worldview. Among the 51% of adults who claim to have a biblical worldview, there are massive inconsistencies. 31% of adults say it's very important for their religious faith to influence every dimension of their life. And yet it would appear, based on the findings of this survey, that that has not uh, been the case. Overall, about half or 46 percent say it's important either very or somewhat or not to uh, for their religious faith to influence every dimension of their life. Now, among those who say it's important for their religious faith to influence every dimension, a small majority claim that they are very effective at integrating their faith into the uh, into the life dimensions of family, uh, personal religious life and personal relationships that um, each one exceeding 50%. And among those who said it's important for their religious uh, faith to influence every dimension of their life, a majority, or rather a minority claim that they're very effective in integrating their faith. Adults who are more likely to say that they do not integrate their faith at, uh, at all into the life dimensions of politics and government, business and the marketplace, and entertainment and news choices, one-eighth of respondents, or 13%, listed each Uh, Of these areas. So while a biblical worldview, they would admit, needs to permeate every area of life, choices relating to politics, entertainment, business, the marketplace, and so on, not so much. Adults were more likely to say that they do not integrate their faith at all into life dimensions um, in those areas. Well, among those who believe integrating their faith into every dimension of life is either very or somewhat important, a slight majority identified their church at 55% and family at 52% as having been very helpful to facilitating the integration of their faith into every dimension of life. And among those who believed integrating their faith into every dimension of life is either very or somewhat important, Less than one-third named their friends, 31%, schools attended, 22%, or the entertainment and news media as having been very helpful in facilitating that integration. Among the seven out of ten adults who believe that God does or might exist, three-quarters, or 78%, say that God cares a lot about what they believe and do uh, in relation to every dimension of society. Finally, among the key findings of the survey In general, um, uh, they were far more likely than other adults to claim to have a biblical worldview. These are uh, a particular group within the sample Uh, to believe is um, it is uh, very important for their faith to influence every dimension of life and to believe that God cares a lot about what they believe. It's a fascinating survey. Of course, it doesn't tell us everything. But again, the um, Center for Biblical Worldview Research conducted by George Barna and commissioned by the Family Research Council might be informative and might uh, reveal where um, some of us are weaker in some areas than others. Anyway, I found it rather interesting. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to interview Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. He'll be joining us in um, at halftime in the first hour and we'll straddle into the second hour i suspect as well so i hope you'll join us 
Want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.